Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 1. One of the great gifts I received from my father was a set of really poor teeth. But fortunately, he also gave me good dental care over the years. (laughs) So I have most of them, and uh, they mostly work fairly well. But this week, I had a toothache. It's been coming on for a while, and I've had a couple of root canals, so I kind of suspect that I'm headed in that direction. You know, a couple of months ago, I had a tooth with a large filling, and it's starting to crack. So they say, well, you need a crown. So I got a crown on it. Now I got this other pain. So I go back to the dentist and got a new dentist and not real sure if I'm going to stick with it there. Uh, She gets me down there and uh, works around, tries to figure out which tooth is bad because you don't want to do a root canal in the wrong tooth, you know. And so I'm glad for her uh, perseverance there. Um, and then there's another dentist in the office, and so she can't quite figure it out, so she calls him in. And he comes to the same ambiguous conclusion. Well, it looks like it's one of those two teeth. And so they have recommended me on to uh, uh, somebody who hopefully will give me a definitive uh, diagnosis and, Lord willing, a cure God's way is not ambiguous. God doesn't say, well, here's two or three options. Why don't you take one of those? God has given us a clear, clear revelation. And not only has he given us a clear revelation, he's given us a purposeful path for our life through that revelation. God is leading us in a direction that brings honor and glory to him. These are the things that we've seen in the last couple of weeks as we've been studying God's Word and thinking about some of the events of the, of the original Christmas story. But while God's way is clear and purposeful, it's also challenging because God doesn't invite us to devise our own ways of following Him. Rather, He demands that we follow Him by faith. And so we want to think about that challenging nature of God's way, God's path for our lives as we consider his truth today. And first thing that we want to understand is this. God's way is challenging because it requires faith. From John chapter 1, the verses that we heard earlier today, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The eternal second person of the Trinity took on a human body and a human nature and came to show us the light of God. He came to say, look, here is the path. Here is the way for your life. He came to show us God's light for our puny earthbound lives. He came through to bring light into darkness. He came to replace the ambiguity of humanly generated philosophies with his clear truth. He came to offer transformation and purpose in life. He said, if you believe in me, you will be born again and you will be able to live forever in heaven. And how was he received for that wonderful life-transforming message? Look at verse 10. He was in the world... And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. What this tells us is some people heard this wonderful message of life and went, yes. And some people heard that same message and went, no. And we have to ask the question, why? Here comes a guy who says, I'm going to make your life really work, and I'm going to give you confidence about eternity in heaven. And some people said, yes, and other people said, no, we don't want that. Well, turn with me to John chapter 3, just about a page over in my Bible. And let's look at, at this hurdle of faith. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right up front, Jesus goes, Here it is in a nutshell. No ambiguity there. Plain and simple. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? The statement may infer that he was like one of the highest, if not the most revered teacher in Israel of of God's Old Testament law. Are you the teacher of Israel and, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we've seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The big question, the big challenge to many people is this issue of faith. Faith itself as a concept is a hurdle to many people on their way to following Christ. But it isn't what many people try to make it. There are many people today who, tr- who, who refuse to believe in Christ and they say that faith is the problem. They have convinced themselves that the only intelligent way to live is without faith. They claim to live by intelligence and according to what they can experience by their five senses only. But they're wrong. Because we all put faith in many things every day. We trust the place where we work to pay us every so often. And people will say, well, yeah, but they've been paying me for years. Oh, are you telling me that dependability means that faith is reasonable? 
We trust other drivers to obey the law. Now, on a day like today, we won't trust them quite so much. But we trust them essentially to obey the law. And when they don't, we're shocked. What's wrong with you? We believe in the laws of gravity and physics so much that we buckle our seatbelts. And yet we, we can't see them. Somebody told us they're there. We've seen their effect. So you're telling me that if you can see the effect of a cause, the cause is reasonable to believe in? Wow. We put faith in a husband or a wife to be faithful. Sometimes that is not, that is not honored. But we trust them because we, we, we can't handcuff them to the kitchen table. So we live with trust. Those who would convince you that evolution is real are doing so by faith in those who have taught them because they haven't done any research themselves. They haven't observed evolution in action. They're taking somebody else's word for it. You're going to tell me that you live without faith? I'm just going to call you a liar. The problem is not the issue of faith. The problem really comes with the issue, perhaps much more so, of honesty. Honesty. God's way requires faith, but it also requires honest investigation. Look with me at John chapter 10. Let's see, is it here? There it is. Jesus said this, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. If I don't do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do the works of my Father, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him. <laughs> Did you notice the debate that they had using the Old Testament scriptures that were available to them? Did you notice that there when I was reading? That's right. They didn't have that debate, did they? Because Jesus' critics were not interested in the truth. They were interested in the validation of their own opinion. Jesus had demonstrated to himself that he was indeed who the Messiah was supposed to be. He had gone back and, and, and lived a life and taught the truth and demonstrated that he was indeed the Savior, but they didn't like it. They clearly saw the miracles. Do you know that in the Old Testament, God gave them a system? They said, if a man comes and says, I have a message from God, ask him for his miracle, and make sure that his message also lines up with the Old Testament truth. He can't do a miracle and say, quit believing in God, and then you have to believe him. The miracle plus the correlation to the Old Testament truth. Jesus performed both of those marvelously. And, and what was their answer? They sought to seize him. They sought to kill him. They didn't say, oh, of course, there's the truth. Because they weren't looking for the truth. They were looking for a validation of their own message. One of the uh, magazines that we have on our magazine rack is the World Magazine. If you're not familiar with it, I would call it a 
sort of a Christian Newsweek or a Christian Time. And uh, they report the things that don't always make it into Newsweek and Time quite so much. Like the current buzz. Here's an article called The Buzz, which means what are people talking about? Uh, I don't know if you've heard this, but if you haven't, you need to Google it. You need to read it in the, in the world. You need to find the information wherever you can. Because what's happened is, on the debate on global warming, somebody hacked the email system of an organization in England uh, called the Climate Research Unit at the University of East Anglia in England. And you know what they found when they hacked their email system? These guys dummied up the data on global warming because the data didn't support their idea. They said, well, you know, this and this and this, but this thing doesn't fit and this thing doesn't fit. We're just going to kind of change that. Really? You're going to set the whole world on this course of direction because you have an idea and your goal here with your scientific investigation is simply to support your own idea? No, you should be seeking the truth. That's the problem with many folks when it comes to Christianity. The truth is evident. The truth is sitting here in this room. The truth has been around for 2,000 years since Christ came and went back to heaven. And they say, don't confuse me with the facts. And they'll throw up roadblocks like faith. Oh, it's all, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm an intelligent person. Well, all of these intelligent people don't seem to want to live by the facts either. We have nearly 2,000 years of history of changed lives and the perseverance of a movement that has been constantly oppressed both by the pagans and by those calling themselves servants of God. One of the most famous oppressions of Christianity and of other intellectual endeavor was uh, the Cultural Revolution in China and Mao Zedong. And he worked hard to get rid of everybody who, I guess, was educated and anything westernized and certainly Christianity. And I believe the figure that I've read somewhere is it got down, they estimate Christianity shrunk down to to 80 to 90,000 Christians in all of China. Do you know how many Christians there are in China today? Nobody else does either because there are so many millions of them. People come into faith in Christ constantly, constantly, constantly. Mao Zedong put forth one of the best efforts ever to eradicate Christianity in his country and he couldn't do it. And yet you're going to stand here, Mr. Unbeliever, and tell me, well, that can't be real. You know, uh, those apostle guys, they, they died for a lie. He didn't really come back from the dead. No, the truth is, the truth is Christianity is real, and God's truth is real. And if you're going to be an honest, an honest investigator of faith, you have to admit that God has had a huge impact on the world through Jesus Christ. Christianity requires honesty in its investigation, but Christianity is also challenging because it requires humility. Humility. Humility means I can't save myself. And I suspect that this is one of the things that cuts across the grain of most people. In fact, I think that's what Romans is talking about 
when it says this, what shall we say then that Gentiles, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to that law of righteousness. Why? Why have they not attained to being righteous people? Because they did not seek it by faith. Faith was a problem. But as it were, they sought it by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The stumbling stone is the stumbling stone of the cross. The cross says to us, Jesus Christ died here to pay for your sins. Those of us who have been in Christ for a long time love to sing the Christmas songs and love to sing it's all about you because we're so thankful to be saved, but we forget that for the person who has not yet believed, what the cross says is you cannot do it yourself. And it is a rock of offense. It tells people they cannot save themselves. I cannot save myself. And that is a very humbling thought to people who have been self-reliant. Why can't we save ourselves? Well, Isaiah 64 says, we are all like an unclean thing, and all our acts of righteousness, our righteousnesses, are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Titus 3.3 focuses us a little bit more for us. It says, We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Here's the reason we can't save ourselves. The, an unbeliever lives like this. That means they're sinful to begin with. And so how could a sacrificial act from a sinful person satisfy a God whose standard is complete holiness. He says, be holy for I am holy. God cannot accept a sacrificial act of goodness from a sinful creature. I love a clean window. I love to be able to look out through those windows and uh, see right out there through them. I especially love my windshield to be clean. And uh, so I have a system of cleaning it when I do. I, I, I use a certain thing and some paper towels, then I use another thing and one of those little microcloths. Because if you just use paper towels and then you get in your car and you look out, what do you see? You see all those streaks and you think, where did that come from? That's what it's like for an unsaved person to offer a gift to God it's got this cloudy film over it. No matter how good they are, no matter what they do, it's got this cloudy film of sin covering it up. All our righteousness, all our righteous acts are as a filthy rag. I've heard unbelievers say, don't you think I'm good enough? Well, the problem is, I'm not the judge. I think you're a very nice person. But God in heaven has a much higher standard. Humility means I can't save myself because I'm a sinner trying to offer sacrifices. Secondly, humility means I do need to be saved. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you see here, when he talks about the Jews and the Greeks, there were two basic receptions to the message of Christ. The Jews had a belief in God. They had a belief in the afterlife. They had a belief in reward and punishment based on their history in what we call the Old Testament. So they had this religious framework. And what they needed to understand was they would never achieve to God's standard, and so they needed to believe in Christ who paid for their sin, and that God would take that sacrifice and wipe their sins clean. Then they would be righteous. But to them, this was a stumbling block because they said, I'm going to earn my own salvation. I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to do enough good. And so humility for them is saying, I can't save myself. But for the person that we would call pagan or totally without God, like the, Jew, like the Greeks, they just say, salvation? What in the world are you talking about? I don't need to be saved. I don't even care about any of that. And so to them, the whole idea of a Savior and Christ is foolishness. It's not a stumbling block. It's just stupid. But that's because they don't understand God's standard. God says, look, I have a standard, and it's my own personal holiness. You be holy, for I am holy. We have to be completely righteous in order to gain the benefits of God's life now and the benefits of heaven when we die. And many people stumble at this. Maybe you have stumbled at this. Maybe you've looked and said, you know, I think I'm good enough. I don't need to even work at being saved. I I think I'm going to make it. And yet God says, no, I'm not good enough. Could I just tell you what the good news is here? The good news is this. God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. What a marvelous thing. We're not talking about stopping all of the things you've been doing to earn salvation and now do a new set of religious things that we're going to define for you, starting with the offering plate. No. We're talking about you putting your faith in Christ the Savior and then God giving you salvation as a grace gift, a gracious gift. What a marvelous, marvelous thing. I can't see how there's anything to be feared, but I do know there is the sacrifice of pride that has to be made. Well, God's way is challenging because it requires faith, honesty, humility. It also requires the surrender of control. This begins at salvation, but it continues on with our Christian life. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After Mary, after his mother Mary was betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, they'd never had physical relations, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to embarrass her publicly, was minded to put her away secretly. You see, in the engagement period of that day, to break the engagement was a divorce. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her, did not have relations with her until she brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Which part of this instruction to Joseph from God through an angel, which part of it do you suppose followed the plans Joseph had made for his life with Mary? Do you suppose in their premarital discussions, they had in their wildest dreams ever said, you know, Mary, God could do this or this or this. No, of course not. What do you suppose they were thinking about when they got engaged? I suppose they were thinking about getting married and having a family and settling down and uh, him pursuing his business of being a carpenter, building a house, having kids, having the grandkids over for Christmas, going to the temple on the appropriate days to worship. They were godly people. Do you suppose in their wildest dreams anything ever this, this far out ever came in? Well, of course not. It's a huge intrusion into their lives. What about Mary? Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose, whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. God just came along and said, I've got something special for you. You know, God says that to us all the time. But it always comes like this, kind of like, are you sure? Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how in the world can that happen? I've never had sex with a man. How can I get pregnant? And the angel said to her, the Lord, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the spirit, the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Again, I ask you, is there any part of this plan that you think was already on Mary's to-do list before she got married? No. It was a complete interruption into her life. And then after, 
uh, Christ is born and the, you know, the shepherds come and so on. Here's a little snippet from the end of Luke 2, which is uh, eight days after the birth of Christ. Then Simon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this is Simon, uh, the prophet, Simeon, excuse me, the prophet, and, and there's Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus uh, having the circumcision uh, in, the, in the temple. Then he blessed them. He said, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will even pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Do you suppose Mary went, Great! How would you respond? You would respond like she did, which the scripture says she kept all these things in her heart and pondered them, or she, she kind of mulled them over going, what in the world? You ever say what in the world when something comes into your life? These things were complete intrusions into their life. Not only complete intrusions, but intrusions that required great sacrifice. I mean, for, for her to be pregnant out of marriage was a huge thing. In fact, we might surmise that the reason the engagement period was always a year long was to make sure that hadn't happened. And for her to show up pregnant was a huge thing. In our society today, it's like, oh, well, another girl's pregnant. And, you know, oh. But for Joseph as well, people would go, hey, Joseph, hey, Ben, oh. And it wasn't something that guys bragged about back then when they were getting married. It was a huge thing, a huge intrusion into their life. God came along and, and, you know, it's like the old good news, bad news stories. I got great news. You're going to do something great in your life. But it's going to come through great sacrifice. And the difference between a disciple and not a disciple is this attitude right here. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. I love that verse. One of the greatest verses in the Bible. You see, when it comes to this issue of control, there's another myth that people work under. And the myth is, nobody tells me what to do. I am an island. I am the captain of my soul. I do what I want to do. And I just want to say, really? So when you drive down the street, nothing ever happens to you and your car except what you will to happen. Nobody ever runs into you. You don't look up in the mirror and go, oh, no. (laughs) When you go to work, everyone agrees with your way of doing things because you are in control of your life. You will never go to a coffee shop and be the victim of a sin-crazed gunman along with several other people. That'll never happen to you, right? Because you're in control of your life. Friends, none of us controls our lives. You can reject God's overt attempt to control, but you cannot live independently. There are forces outside of you, including God, who will always be at work. 
Romans 14 puts it well. It says, none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. This is God's intention. You can fight God's intention, but God's intention is clear that Jesus is, wants to be not only your Savior, but your Lord. Mary and Joseph give us a great example of allowing God to be both Lord and Savior. Christ expects to be the Lord of your life. Joseph's sacrifice of his own plans, of his own reputation, enabled him to pass on the right to the throne of Israel, to Christ. Mary's sacrifice of her plans and her reputation allowed her to be used of God to bring the human life of our Savior into the world. She gave birth to her own Savior. Don't hesitate. Don't hesitate to give God control of your life. I have a little, a little saying in my office. I think this one is still out. I, when I read these once in a while, I put it out to remind me and others. I think it was D.L. Moody who said, Give God control of your life. He can do more with it than you can. Boy, that's so true. But it's so hard to see, especially when you haven't yet believed. You know how a dentist diagnoses a bad tooth that might need a root canal? They, they take a little thing like this. You know, this is the end they normally get in there and do that nasty business with. They take the other end and they go, Does that one hurt? That one hurt? How about that one? Yeah, it kind of hurts a little bit. In fact, they all hurt when you do that. And that's not quite definitive enough. So they go, does that hurt? Does that hurt? Yeah, it kind of all hurts. The whole zone up here in my face hurts, as a matter of fact. Well, that doesn't quite work. So the other guy, he gets a little thing with some cold spray. Psst, psst. How's that feel? <laughs> well, it feels terrible. <laughs> I wasn't excited to go and find out what was wrong because I knew that's what the process was going to involve. See, I want the cure, but I don't want the pain that brings the cure. And that's one of the challenges that we have with Christianity. We want the cure. We just don't want the pain that comes with it. And frankly, the pain, folks, is the pain of, what, uh, of this challenge of faith, of honesty, of humility, and of letting go of control. But the old saying is true. The way, the way to the glory <laughs> is through the challenge. The way to the progress is through the pain. There is pain that has to come to our human soul in order to come to faith in Christ and in order to live in faith in Christ. But the cure is well worth the pain. Heavenly Father, help us. We are so comfort-driven, both in our, our souls and in our bodies, that, that we don't want to go through any pain. Father, I pray if there's somebody here who's never believed in Christ, that you will help them to see that the cure is worth the pain. But there will be some pain. There will be some challenge. 
Help them to let go of that today and fall into your arms. Father, for those of us that know you today, help us to stop trying to run our own lives. Help us to let you do the great things that you have intended for us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.